Erev Tov, good evening. We are together again in the final pieces of our winter series. It doesn't mean we're done with the Kedah Shem Tov, it just means we're done with this section of the Kedah Shem Tov. And if you'll join me in the PDF on page, I actually don't know what page it is in your PDF, but it should say Roman numeral 12 at the bottom of the page. Maybe it's page uh, 11 in there? Could it be? So 10. 10, thank you. Okay, 10. I appreciate that, Jordan. So we're going through the list of 12 episodes of infighting in the Jewish community, which wreaked havoc on Am Israel and have ramifications, consequences that we suffer from until today. We spent the last three weeks discussing the matter of the Sanhedrin. So we started off in the matter of the Semicha, Rabbi Yaakov Berav, Rabbi Levi ben Chabib, and this whole conversation surrounding the attempt to reconvene the Sanhedrin in Sfat in the 1500s. We then spent some time discussing the attempt in Egypt by Rabbi Aaron Mender HaKohen, as well as last week with Rabbi Uda Leib Fishman Maimon. And this week we're going to the next of the topics And that is where it says Chet, on page 10 in your PDF, page Chet, uh, page 10, section Chet, the top of the page, the second paragraph. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, is sharing with us the next episode that almost tore Am Yisrael into pieces. Is HaMehumot She'alu Uvau Al Am Yisrael Ba'olam the commotion that happened to the Jewish people in the world, from the supposed Mashiach, the imposter Mashiach, the false Mashiach, Shabtai Tzvi. And until today, there are still those in Saloniki who are his followers, Kayadua, as is known. Someone tell me something about Shabtai Tzvi. What do we know about Shabtai Tzvi? I'm sure we know a lot. The question is, what do we know? Mord is not here tonight. That means it's free game for everybody. Um, there was a big messianic movement around him. People thought he was the Messiah, um, but rather out of control. Um, uh, the, the Ottomans ended up persecuting him and forcing him to convert to Islam, and then quite a lot of his followers also did so. Um, Okay, that's a pretty good summary. And when one is, yeah, his like um, the beliefs around him were very antinomian. They were very anti-law, and it was all about breaking rules. In fact, that's very important to note. His favorite blessing in the world was Baruch Matir Asurim. Blessed is he who frees the captives. But really, he always understood this to mean Matir Asurim, who permits that which is usually prohibited. Uh, part of his whole movement revolved around this concept of sacred sin, which is the, the need to violate Torah law in order to accomplish some spiritual uh, task at hand. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let me just give you that brief timeline. Uh, Leonaz mentioned a few major events. So, Shabda Tzvi is born in Smyrna uh, to a family of Romaniot Jews. So really, it wouldn't be fair to lump him not as a Sephardi, nor as an Ashkenazi, he's in his own ballpark, but he most definitely operated predominantly in the Eretz Israel, Turkey, the Sephardic regions of that time. In 1648, Shabtai has his first revelations that he's the Mashiach. In 1651, he is sent out from Smyrna and begins his wandering travels around the different Jewish communities he comes in contact with. 
It happens only in 1665 that he meets the famous Natan of Aza, Nathan of Gaza, who officially declares him the Mashiach. He becomes his sidekick. Every good Mashiach needs a good prophet. And they work in tandem with each other to continue causing chaos in the Jewish community. Only a year later, in 1666, Shabtai converts to Islam. And in the year 1676, Shabtai dies on Yom Kippurim, which has tremendous spiritual significance for those who are his followers. But I just wanted to give you a brief overview. We're talking about someone who was born in, in Izmir of 1626 in the Ottoman Empire, and he dies also in a very small village in the Ottoman Empire in 1676. Shabtai was all of 50 years old when he passed away. Let's learn about him a little bit together. The value of studying about Shabtai Tzvi is not only to know history. And that is important. My wife just shared with me before that she was teaching somewhere and she asked the whole group of young people that went to Jewish school. So they all went to Jewish day schools in their life. She asked them about the Spanish Inquisition and not one of them knew what the Spanish Inquisition was. So not only, not only are we dealing with ignorance of history, but I fear sometimes that even those who study history study it always in an angle or in a frame of reference that it's, it would be wise to look at alternative understandings of the way things unfolded, especially from a Jewish and rabbinic perspective. Shabtai Zvi, as I told you, is born supposedly on the 9th of Av of 1626. Whether he actually was born on the 9th of Av or not, we won't know. Why is it so important for his followers that he was born on the 9th of Av? Somebody tell me. Because that's, um, Mashiach is meant to be born on the 9th of Av. Very good. There's some uh, vague midrashim that discuss the Mashiach being born on Tisha B'Av. He then dies on the 10th of Tishrei, that's Yom Kippurim, of 1676. From all of our false Mashiachs, and there were many of them, Shabtai Tzvi perhaps is the most famous and the most notorious. I just want to throw it out there, because we're coming close soon to Yom HaTzma'ud and Israeli independence and things like that. Rabbi uh, Moshe David Gaon, who I've quoted to you before, who wrote perhaps the most important works on Sephardic Jewish history, in my opinion, he records that the reason, in his opinion, why false Mashiachs were so prevalent, especially among Sephardim, from the many Messianic movements, very few of them are Ashkenazi and at root, is because of the very healthy obsession that Sephardim had with Eretz Yisrael, with national autonomy, with a desire to return home and not, uh, not stay in exile forever. And because these movements were alive and well, if you recall in Mayom HaTzmochu, I mentioned that Rav Kapach says, that only those who had a sickness that they never wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael, they needed the remedy called Zionism. But those who weren't sick, they didn't need the medication called Zionism. They always were going to Eretz Yisrael. Shabtai is the most notorious, but he did not only affect Sephardim. Shabtai wrecked havoc all across the Jewish uh, spectrum, Ashkenaz especially, and much of what we are suffering from today in the Jewish community, you can already find undercurrents of this in the life and times of Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi was involved in the study of Kabbalah. I think perhaps the most famous scholar of Shabtai Tzvi is Gershom Shalom, as well as, as well as, if you can maybe throw it out there, Mayor Benayahu also spent a significant amount of his life uh, studying the Sabbathian movement. Those of you who are in my Tubishvat class, uh, discussing the Sabbathian origins of, of uh, Tubishvat and how it's one of those unusual holidays that's a Kabbalistic holiday. It's not mentioned in the Zohar or in the Arizal or in the writings of Rechaim Vital. It's Kabbalistic, and we know it's Kabbalistic sources from a book called Chemdat HaYemim. Chemdat HaYemim, yes, there are definitely those who disagree, but most likely is an early Sabbathian work, at least in, in the rabbinic understanding of that text. And that's how the whole Tubishvat Seder comes into the Jewish community by way of this movement. It's one of the few leftovers that we have of Shabtai Tzvi in our actual Batei uh, Knesset. Does someone else know which Sabbathian things you can find in almost every Sephardic synagogue in the world? Don't 
No, not that one. You can blame a lot of people for that, but not him. Okay, if I don't answer that question halfway through the class, can someone remind me, please? Because it's very important. Shabda Tzvi, aside from getting rid of things, also instituted all kinds of holidays among his followers, like holidays in which he revealed himself to be the Mashiach, uh, that happened on the 21st of Sivan, uh, the day in which he was saved, that happens on the 16th of Kislev. Uh, there's a day on the 22nd of Tammuz, in which Shabda Tzvi's followers consider that to be a tremendous occasion in their life. And much of what we have about Shabda Tzvi comes from the letters that are running between different rabbis, different chachamim, different uh, politicians in that time, there's actually a tremendous amount recorded about Shabda Tzvi. And what you really have to sift through is to try to understand, put aside all the, the passion and the rage, to really piece together a story of what actually happened. Shabda Tzvi went to Saloniki from, uh, with an intent to be involved in a city which was really the capital of the Jewish community. I should have brought it with you now. They just published a book, of the, an encyclopedia, of the rabbis of Saloniki. It's a book, I'm not exaggerating, perhaps this thick, just the chachamim of that city. Uh, it's not, it's, it's unbelievable that when you try to think about some other much less significant Jewish areas, I'm not gonna mention names, which put together maybe only a fraction of those chachamim who have a monopoly over the entire Jewish community. It's an unbelievable thing. But for right now, we won't get carried away on that tangent. Shabtai Tzvi, in Saloniki starts to do all kinds of unusual things. So in the beginning, especially by the way when he comes to Yerushalayim, people hear about him, this righteous man, a pious man, a Kabbalist, this is the rise of Kabbalah in the world right now. It's a popular thing to be a, a mystic in this time period. Shabtai Tzvi has people coming to ask him to pray for them, rabbis who are so fond of his, his piety. All of a sudden Shabtai Tzvi begins doing very unusual things. Gershom Shalom is of the opinion that Shabtai Tzvi suffered from what you would probably call today bipolar disorder. And I'm, I'm not speaking, you know, mental conditions are real and I'm not here to, to speak ill of any of them. Uh, but this, this is something that could perhaps explain some of the behavior that we see. Very, very, um, even later in Shabtai Tzvi's life, when he becomes a Muslim, there are days where he's a devout Muslim and hates Jews, and there are days where he's a devout Jew who hates Muslims, and he, he keeps jumping around different personalities. There's more than one Shabtai Tzvi you seem to be reckoning with throughout Jewish history. But Shabtai Tzvi begins to do unusual things. He studied by some great chachamim and ultimately finds himself using this Torah knowledge in Saloniki where he gathers a group of people around him. Perhaps one of the most unusual things that he does is him getting married and then staying very far away from his wife. So much so that the Bedin requires him to give his wife a get. This happens twice to Shabtai Tzvi in which he gets married, but doesn't have anything to do with his wife. Doesn't, not physically intimate with her. There are professors, among them Gershom Shalom, who explain that Shabtai Tzvi seems to have gone through some kind of sexual trauma in his youth. Uh, we don't know exactly when. Some say it was when he was five or six years old. Some say when he was 15 or 16 years old. Nonetheless, it seems to have left him with some type of uh, uh, sexual inadequacy, which explains, if you accept this understanding of, of Shabtai Tzvi's life, explains much of the obsession with sexuality that Shabtai Tzvi is, is running around with in his entire life. His whole life, so much of it is bent on, on matters of very dark sexuality. Shabtai Tzvi, in the middle of a big meal that he had with Tamadei Chachamim and Saloniki, Shabtai Tzvi gets up and commands they bring to him a Sevat Torah. And they bring a Sevat Torah and he takes the Sevat Torah under the chuppah and he pronounces the blessing on a marriage and marries a Torah scroll. So you could argue that Shabtai Tzvi's third wife is really a Torah scroll. And he explains his behavior that a Mashiach must marry the Torah, the Mashiach is the partner of the Torah. Ultimately the rabbis of Saloniki go crazy. I mean, who marries a Torah scroll? Living with the Torah scroll. I don't want to get into details of the perversions of what Shabbat did with the Torah scroll. And ultimately the rabbis summon him and he can't really offer up an apology. The only thing he's willing to say is, okay, you know what, not just me, I'm the wife, uh, husband of the Torah, but every, all of us, all the children of Hashem are married to the Torah in some way. They end up throwing him out of town and he realizes very quickly he's not welcome and runs out of here. And essentially, 
now begin his wanderings throughout various Jewish communities. His next stop is in Greece, different cities in Greece. He finds himself in 1658 in Kushta. And in Kushta, he has all kinds of, um, I'm concerned what I'm recording myself saying, but all kinds of very flamboyant and very public uh, sexual exhibitions that go on over there in Chapter Tzvi's followings. One day he shows up in the streets walking around with a fish in a baby in a baby bonnet. So he's walking around with a fish inside of baby clothing, children's clothing. And he's telling people the revelation of the Mashiach will happen in the, in the constellation, the mazal of the fish, and that this is part of his uh, service of the Creator. Unusual things. Uh, he, he, Shabbat Tzvi, like Leonaz mentioned, aside from getting rid of laws, he also was very into combining things that have nothing to do with each other. So there's a famous incident that happened to him in Kushta, where he celebrated the three festivals, meaning uh, uh, Sukkah, he was li- sitting in a Sukkah and doing a Pesach Seder while studying the Tikkun Neil Shavuot, the all-night Torah study of Shavuot, as part to show that he's celebrating all three holidays in one day. Uh, by the way, this is something that you might find even in the Jewish community today. Uh, somebody here in my Kila went to a bar mitzvah. You know, they wanted to have the whole family get together. So on Shabbat morning, the rabbi did shacharit and Torah reading and Musaf and Havdalah all in the same hour. It was a uh, collective uh, Shabbat service all in one hour. Uh, so I guess Shabbat Tzvi was the early precursor for that. And this is essentially when we find Shabbat Tzvi. This becomes his tagline, Baruch Matir Asurim. Baruch Matir Asurim. It's not really what the blessing means, but... Praiseworthy is he who is able to undo the prohibitions. And Shabbat Tzvi begins fanatically to do all kinds of crazy, unusual things. And you're going to find that later in his life, he offers a Korban Pesach. And he, I mean, outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, he offers a Pesach offering, but then intentionally eats from the forbidden fats of that offering in order to show that he is able to both offer a Pesach offering as well as indulge in sacred sin, all while screaming his motto, Baruch Matir Asurim, blessed is he who is able to undo prohibitions. He goes through Rhodes, he goes through Egypt, Chatei Tzvi is traveling through many, many different Jewish communities. When he arrives in Egypt, rumors come to him of a lady named Sarah. Has anyone heard of Shabbat Tzvi's wife, Sarah? She was famously referred to in the Sabbathian circles as Sarah Hamalka, Sarah the Queen. You know, Leonardo Rukhi tells about Sarah Hamalka. Um, I'm not sure what I can say in like a, a delicate way. Um, <laughs> she, she didn't keep polite company. <laughs> that, that's a very delicate way to say like, That was her profession. Her profession was not keeping polite company. That's correct. She was very well connected um, in in um, all over Europe. As she went to uh, Italy and uh, well, North Africa, Egypt, Poland. Very good, and she makes a name for herself. This Sarah is essentially orphaned from her parents at the age of five or six. She's an Jewish girl. If my memory serves me correctly, she may have been orphaned from parents who were massacred. Uh, at the time, you had the Chelmenitsky massacres that were going on in Europe. If I'm not mistaken, this is her origin, which you can only imagine as a young girl of five or six having her entire family massacred. It's the equivalent of a Holocaust survivor at the age of five or six. She, she, you can clearly see that there's, she's not, okay. Uh, she ends up going professionally into a career that involves spending much time with um, impolite company. And uh, this becomes really her profession. She's very famous for it. She's very well known uh, for this this uh, profession of hers. She creates a reputation. She also, sometime in her early teenage years, begins to proclaim that she is going to marry the Messiah of the Jewish people. So she will be the spouse of the Mashiach. Shabtai Tzvi hears that there's a young teenage girl looking to be the wife of the Mashiach. It's a match made in heaven. It's a shiduch. And he sends word for her, she's now in Livorno in Italy, that they should summon Sarah to him and the two of them should get married. And that's exactly what happens. Sarah, as a teenager, finds herself in Egypt. She ends up marrying Shabtai Tzvi, taking on the title of Shabtai Tzvi is the king, then she is the queen. She signs her name such. So you sign her name as Sarah Hamalka over and over and over again. Uh, unfortunately, her actions with impolite company don't stop there. 
And the followers of Shabtai Tzvi, who still are deeply entrenched in rabbinic Judaism, try to bend over backwards, explaining how on earth it could be that their Mashiach is married to a lady of the type of uh, Sarah. Ultimately, they invoke on themselves uh, the verse of Hosea. So Hosea the prophet, if you're familiar with the prophecy of Hosea? There's a few prophecies I will never teach in public. That's one of them. I just don't know what to do with it. I have a little class on Hosea somewhere in my Rambam series. But Hosea is forced to marry a prostitute. HaKadosh Baruch requires him to... A whole... Uh, an unusual nivuah there that happens. An unusual story. Nonetheless, they're trying to show that just like the prophet Hosea had to marry a prostitute, so too Shabda uh, Tzvi uh, had to do the same thing. He finds himself in Egypt, in company of very powerful men, especially the man who's in charge of the finances of the Egyptian Jewish community. Which means that when Shabtai Tzvi comes back to Israel, and you have to understand here, if there are massacres that are going on in Europe, and much of the funding that the Jewish community in Jerusalem are living off of directly come from Europe, then when the Jewish people are being massacred in Europe, the funds in Eretz Israel begin to dry up. And the Jews of Jerusalem are feeling the pressure of two things, the lack of funding, and the unfair taxation imposed on them by the Ottoman Empire. And so they have bills they need to pay. They don't have sources of where to get money. Shatay Tzvi shows up literally as a savior from Egypt. He knows the guy who's in charge of the finances of the Egyptian Jewish community. And they hire Shabtai Tzvi, the rabbis of Jerusalem. They hire Shabtai Tzvi to be their messenger to go collect money in, in Egypt on behalf of the Jerusalem Jewish community, which he does gladly. He goes to Egypt. He collects a sizable sum of money. Later in time, he is sued in the Turkish court because it seems that the money that he collected in Egypt, not all of it actually ended up in Jerusalem and some of it ended up in his own personal pocket. Shabtai won that court case. So he won the case, but financial corruption became part of his personality at this point in his history. And things only get worse when coming back to Jerusalem, he finds himself struggling immensely with himself. He has visions, he has dreams, he has breakdowns. There are days where he cannot get out of bed. There are days where he's on a high and days where he's on a low. He does not know what to do with himself. At this point in time in Israel, there was a man by the name of Natan of Aza. Natan of Aza, Nathan of Gaza, was the student of a Chacham who I mentioned here before. Anyone know the rabbi of Natan of Aza? There's a famous Sephardic rabbi, you should know him. Can someone tell me what the phrase Torah umada or Torah im derech eretz means? I feel like I'm a YU student. I'm obligated to answer that. That's, Please. Uh, uh, work for a balance. Yeah, what, what is that? What's it, what is it representative of? The school is still struggling with this after 150 years. So. <laughs> this idea of being able to balance a secular education with a Jewish one is the hallmark of certain Jewish institutions and movements. Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz, without any logos or any, that was already his yeshiva. Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz had one of the most unique Sephardic yeshivot in the world, which included not just Jewish studies and secular studies, but vocational studies, a number of different types of studies. And they used to joke about those people who studied in the yeshiva, they never left. There was no reason to ever leave that yeshiva. It was almost like its own little family. Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz raised many of the giants of that generation. Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz ultimately becomes one of the greatest uh, opponents of Shabtai Tzvi, and his son, Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, inherits this anti-Messianic fervor and becomes not only an opponent of Shabtai Tzvi and the Sabbatheans, but he also becomes a major opponent to one other Kabbalist known as the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Uh, Rabbi Moshe Chagiz is one of the greatest opponents of the Ramchal, and it's part of history that we'll talk about at a different time in a different place. Natan of Aza is a student of the most famous yeshiva in Jerusalem. He is a Kabbalist. He's deeply involved in Lurianic Kabbalah, in particular in Kavanot and Yehudim and all kinds of things like that. And he has a reputation that he is some kind of soul doctor. Shabtai Tzvi hears about this man who is a soul doctor and goes to him seeking for someone to help heal his soul. Natan of Aza, and I cannot tell you what the motivations behind Natan of Aza are, Natan of Aza not only does not heal Shabtai Tzvi, but he tells him that all the messianic visions that he's been having are true. And he actually pushes him to the brink of insanity. And Natan of Aza is perhaps single-handedly responsible for convincing Shabtai Tzvi that he is the Mashiach. 
In fact, Natan of Aza was an expert forger. He even forged old papers to make it look like there were prophecies in the past, that there would be a man named Shabtai who would come and redeem the Jewish people, and he would be this and that and the next thing. Shabtai Tzvi became the Mashiach, and Natan of Aza conveniently appointed himself as the prophet of Shabtai Tzvi. So if Shabtai Tzvi was this charismatic Messiah figure, he would be nothing without his sidekick, Natan of Aza. Really, it's less of a sidekick and more like a manager. He was his agent. He was the guy who made sure that Shabtai Tzvi's name went all over the Jewish world. In fact, Natan of Aza quickly realized that he could not do this alone. He needed more prophets, the type like him, who could go and proclaim the visions of Shabtai Tzvi to the world. He ends up hiring two new prophets, a Sephardic one and an Ashkenazi one. The Ashkenazi one, I think his name was Matityahu Blach, or Menachem Blach, something Blach. One of them goes to Sephardic countries, one of them goes to Ashkenazi countries, and in this way, in an organized fashion, Shabtai Tzvi's reputation begins to spread out across the entire Jewish world. There's a book, Torah Kanaut, of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, in which many of those proclamations that were put out to the Jewish people, the Mashiach is coming. The massacres have happened. They're behind you. There's a Mashiach on his way. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's traveling to the Middle East and Europe. He will come and redeem you. You can only imagine if you are a Jewish person whose family has been massacred, whose villages have been destroyed, or who are simply living in exile for a hundred years too many. And you hear news of a great rabbi, a tzaddik, a Kabbalist. He's coming from Jerusalem to save the Jewish people. There are prophets again restored in the Jewish people that are proclaiming all over the world that the Mashiach is coming. Can you only imagine what type of messianic fervor is happening in the world right now? What the Jewish community is feeling like? And this fervor is taken advantage of. And there was uh, Shabtai Tzvi realizes after returning from Egypt that he cannot stay in Jerusalem because very quickly the rabbis of Jerusalem start to be suspicious of Shabtai Tzvi's activities. There's a saying that Halach Shaliach Chazar Mashiach he went as a messenger, this I found on Wikipedia, so I didn't actually find an original source, but it was, seemed to be authoritative enough, or if not, it's cute enough for me to quote. Uh, he went as a messenger, he came back as a Mashiach. You know, this guy, we sent him to collect money, now he came back as our Mashiach. Shabtai Tzvi realizes quickly that Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz, the Rabbi Natan of Aza, has no patience for him, and begins to wage a war against Shabtai Tzvi. I will say that there is much dispute among scholars of Shabtai Tzvi as to what exactly was the, what made this time period in history so fertile for Shabtai Tzvi's messianic visions to take over the world. Uh, there are some who say Gershom Shalom, I mentioned earlier, he explains that it's the spread of Lurianic Kabbalah, which essentially sets the record for the world getting involved in Kabbalah. For those who are familiar with Shabtai Tzvi, it seems that Lurianic Kabbalah was not his thing. In fact, he was an opponent to Lurianic Kabbalah, and he had to work that out with Natan Avaza, who was a Lurianic Kabbalist of sorts. Uh, there are others who say that Shabtai Tzvi came in the wake of the Tach and Tat massacres, the Chalmanitsky massacres, and essentially the Jewish people needed hope. They needed something to believe in. Whenever there's chaos, look at the beginning of COVID. I have a video from the beginning of COVID. When I say, Mashiach will not come tomorrow. There's an amount of hate mail that I got for that one. It, tops some of my other videos that, that really I thought they were the top, but this one was special. Uh, there was a famous story of a rabbi, an Ashkenazi rabbi, his name is slipping my mind right now, in the middle of the Holocaust, who stood up in the ghetto and said, Mashiach will not come tomorrow. All these rabbis were prophets, the Nazis are coming, invasions, concentration camps, Mashiach is on its way. He said, Mashiach is not on its way. Said, well, how do you know Mashiach? Don't you, don't you have a commandment to believe Mashiach can come every day? He said, yes. So if I'm in violation of that commandment, that's fine. But if I promise people that Mashiach will come tomorrow and he does not come, I will be the cause for the Jewish people slipping into insanity. And I will not take that responsibility on myself. I'd rather be a heretic than be responsible for the decline, the moral decline of the Jewish people. And this same idea was people saying, COVID, Magifot, they started finding me gematrias, the weekly Torah portions, obscure Rashi's talking about eating raw meat and bats and who knows whatever else people wanted to throw at me. And it doesn't make it, Mashiach is not coming tomorrow. Meaning you cannot, in a wake of tragedy, every time there's a tragedy in the Jewish people, people start thumping the Mashiach card around. But we know that's not the case. It's not the way that this is going to work. There's one movement, and this directly connects Shabtai Tzvi to the United Kingdom. In, uh, in Britain at the time, already among the Christians, there was a lot of messianic fervor at this time period. If you know a little bit about this time period, this is the time which Menashe ben Israel, 
was sending already letters to Oliver Cromwell. I once brought you this book to show you in the shiur, in which he's trying to convince the British government to allow Jews back to the United Kingdom. In fact, one of the rabbis who's in the, the entourage of Rabbi Menasheh ben Israel, his name is Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas. Have you heard of Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas? Yeah, so we're going to talk about him in just a minute. He was one of the main opponents, the lone opponents of Shabtai Tzvi. And this was a time where already in the Christian world, especially in the United Kingdom, there was a lot of discussion about Mashiach coming. Even the Christians were printing in their newspapers, the Jewish Mashiach has come, the Jews are coming back to Eretz Yisrael. And this, is, this became a thing. It wasn't just the Jews that Shabtai Tzvi affected. Uh, they refer to Shabtai Tzvi so much as a Mashiach, they called him the Amirah, the Adonenu, Malkenu Yarum Hodo, our king, our master, his uh, glory should be uplifted. And here I think, yes? At what point did his followers realize his colorful reputation? Like, were they aware of his actual history? Unfortunately, yes. And that's actually a great point, a good segue to what I'm about to say right now. Um, which is the justifications that started happening on behalf of the Jewish establishment who supported chapter Let me stop for a second. When I say the Jewish establishment who supported chapter Tzvi, I do not want to go down in the books of Jewish history as the one who spread blasphemous things about the rabbis who came before me. But it's almost impossible to assume that if you came from a Sephardic or Ashkenazi community, that any of your great-great-grandparents Meaning, you must assume that they all believe in Shabtai Tzvi. I think that we know of a handful of rabbis. A handful of rabbis. What do I mean a handful? You'd be lucky if you're pushing the number five who openly opposed Shabtai Tzvi. And from the rabbis who supported him, I don't want, I'm not going to mention their names. I just can't. If I would mention the names of the rabbis who supported Shabtai Tzvi, you would, you would take half the books off your bookshelf. I mean, Shabtai Tzvi is, is the almost undisputed Mashiach of the Jewish people. Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, and I'm going to talk about him in a moment because it's, it's really, you know what? Let's talk about him now. Why not? Let's talk about him now. Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas. I brought a book. Highly recommend. I haven't read all of it yet, but... It's called The Dissonant Rabbi by uh, Professor Yaakov Dweck. I don't know who he is, but I've read a number of his writings. And uh, maybe some of you in the academic world might know better than me who he is. Uh, but it's a wonderful book. Essentially, I'll read to you from the introduction. In 1665, Shabtai Tzvi, a self-proclaimed Mashiach, with a mass following throughout the Ottoman Empire in Europe, announced the redemption of the world was at hand. As Jews everywhere rejected the traditional laws of Judaism in favor of new norms established by Shabtai Tzvi and abandoned reason for the ecstasy of messianic enthusiasm, one man watched in horror. Dissident rabbi tells the story of Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, the Sephardic rabbi, who alone challenged Shabtai Tzvi's improbable claims and warned his fellow Jews that their Mashiach was not the answer to their prayers. Distant rabbi is the right word, because really he was alone. In fact, in an article of the same Jacob Dweck, Yaakov Dweck, he quotes Rabbi Isaac Nahar, who was a rabbi in Amsterdam, who argues with Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas and critiques him. How dare you speak up against Shabtai Tzvi? How dare you warn people that he's not a holy man, that he's not the Mashiach? His claim, I have the English translation in front of me, is as follows. He says, I do not know why you have not remained silent. Why have you publicized your opinion among the people who walk innocently and uphold their faith? What's the justification for Shabtai Tzvi? How do we know that he's the righteous Mashiach that he says he is? For in all of the places where we have heard these rumors, people are returning to Hashem with all their heart. And to me, this is one of the signs of redemption, as Maimonides wrote in the Laws of Repentance. The fact that Shabtai Tzvi inspires around the world, perhaps the largest Baal Teshuvah movement in history since Haman. Jews around the world are doing Teshuvah. Jews around the world are praying and they're fasting and they're getting ready for the Mashiach to come. Jews are keeping Shabbat. Jews are doing things they never did before because the Mashiach is here. So in the words of the rabbis of that generation, how dare you speak against the greatest Kirov rabbi in history? I'm just using modern English. 
You ever heard this before? This rabbi, who cares the crazy things he says on YouTube? He makes millions of people religious. I'm still waiting to meet all the millions of people that are, are just waiting for the number. Yes. Those who understand what I'm talking about, you understand what I'm talking about. I mean, this whole idea of Kiruv justifies everything. It's the evil that we suffer from until today. Jewish organizations that lead people to psychological damage, to familial, uh, 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 there's a word for this, so it's slipping my mind right now, to people cutting off relationships with their families, to tremendous discord in Jewish communities, to, to people giving up careers and their education in order to go be kolel people in Jerusalem who live off of $3 a day and sweep staircases for a living. People who otherwise could take care of their families and their children. This whole world of everything is justified by Kiruv. As long as they get people to keep Shabbat and eat kosher, we'll never say an ill word about them. It's a very dangerous ideology, and it's one that, that I think you already find signs of here in the generation of Shabbat Tzvi. <sighs> Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas, in one of his most famous letters, he writes, Have you seen in a single book that one must believe in a Mashiach about someone who says about himself, I am the Mashiach? Or about whom they say, this is the honored king, before he performs the deeds of the Mashiach according to the formulation of Maimonides in the laws of kings? Meaning, have you ever heard of an obligation to believe that someone is the Mashiach just because he said he was the Mashiach? Or just because people have proclaimed him to be the king? Even if he provides several other signs and wonders. So maybe he did miracles, maybe he, who knows what he did. Are these sufficient to establish him as the Mashiach? The Mashiach's deeds are dependent upon him fighting the war of Hashem, the construction of the Bet Mikdash, the gatherings of the exile. For if this were not the case, anyone who wanted to take the name Mashiach would simply come and take it as long as his piety served as proof. And there would be as many Mashiachs as there are Kohanim. There's a Jewish group who believes their rabbi is the Mashiach. And I just saw today an article that they wrote about Shabtai Tzvi, the imposter Mashiach. And I just thought the irony was so rich. Uh, you know, the imposter Mashiach calling the imposter Mashiach an imposter. It was a fantastic thing to see. But you're dealing with a Jewish community who they say he's the Mashiach. He's a holy man. He's a righteous man. Says, says uh, Rabbi Hakuf Tosportas, call him all the things you want. But just because you determine that someone is the Mashiach doesn't make him the Mashiach. He didn't do any of the things the Mashiach has to do. This is again a problem. In the Jewish community today, I don't know how uh, overt I should speak. We have double standards. If somebody believes that Yeshu is the Mashiach and comes to the synagogue with a kippah on it that says, long live Yeshu the Mashiach, we would ask them to leave the synagogue, most likely. Or at least to change their kippah out. But if somebody would come with the same exact kippah, just with a different name written on that kippah, we wouldn't say a word. Not a word. In fact, if you would say a word, look, even what I'm saying right now would be considered controversial. How dare you uh, cause discord among the Jewish people? What I'm saying right now would be considered problematic. So just substitute the word for someone else. What's the difference? Why the double standard? Because somehow in the Jewish community, there's a tolerance for false Mashiachs, as long as miracles, stories, mass uh, Baal Teshuvah movements, these things always justify what happens afterwards. There are lessons that we have to learn from the history that's in front of us. I still want to finish some things before I finish the shiur. Rabbi Yaakov Sesportas writes perhaps one of his most tragic sentences. I want to read that to you because I think that Betsy will make you feel even sadder for him. So in the academic world, there are those who try to prove that Rabbi Yaakov Sesportas was not as brave as he really was. It seems that some of the original letters that he sent were not as harsh as the later versions that he published in his manuscripts. And listen, I can explain that to you very simply. There are times where I've had to say things in public and only when I'm among my group of students or when the event has passed am I able to speak as harshly as I would have liked to speak about something. Rabbi Yaakov Zesportas seems to have done the same thing. Knowing that the people who are going to read his letters will attack him, he had to tone down certain things while still maintaining opposition. But there are those who try to show him that he only became an anti-Sabbathian later. It's not a correct analysis, in my opinion, of his life. He writes the following words. I saw myself, says Rabbi Yaakov Zesportas, as like one individual kernel of sand on this earth. Even the Torah scholars and their students, none of them support me. None of them back me in my war against Shabtai Tzvi. 
והנמשכים אחריי מעטים מאוד. And those who follow me in not believing in Shabbat Tzvi, they're a minority of a minority. And here he records uh, in his book, Tzitat Novel Tzvi. There's an abridged version you can find on HebrewBooks.org. Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas records his experience going to the synagogue in the generation of Shabbat Tzvi. Listen to this. This is in Hamburg. So he was a rabbi in, in Germany for a little bit. He writes, We all were standing in the synagogue in awe, like a fitting a place of worship. And every member of the synagogue prayed in his own way. Those believers in chapter Tzvi and the awe that they had for their king. And we also prayed in the same synagogue. But we had fear from the king who has no crown, from the creator of the universe. When we prayed the Shalom, and in order to maintain the peace, in order so that we wouldn't cause commotion in the synagogue, and in order so that we would not be thrown out of our own synagogue, I had to stand up when they stood up. And when they would bless Shabtai Tzvi, I had to stand up also when they said Amen. Amen. I was forced to answer Amen in public also. He said, but always when they said their blessing in my mouth, I had a curse. I was cursing. I was cursing these wicked people who are fighting against our holy Torah. And just like each one of us prayed in that synagogue in our own way them to their king and us to our king. He said, I also answered Amen in my way to my curse and they answered Amen to their blessings. The major Jewish communities in the Batei Knesset, you couldn't find minyanim of people who didn't believe in Shabbat Tzvi. It gets worse though. It's not only in his lifetime. And I see what time it is, so I'm, I'm going to get to this part of the shoe. Shabbat Tzvi at a certain point in time decides to head out and take over the Turkish Empire. So he puts a crown on his head and decides that he's the Mashiach of the, of the whole empire and that he's going to decrown the king and he's going to take over the throne. Now, in the Jewish community, who knows? So they excommunicate him, they throw him out of one city. But here you're messing with the Turkish Empire. You're messing with the Ottomans here. Uh, they're not taking very uh, well to this idea that some Jewish Mashiach is going to come here and, and overthrow us. On the way, by the way, he's nullifying the 17th of Tammuz. The 9th of Av becomes a tremendous holiday for the Sabbatians. Tu Bishvat is a major holiday for the Shabtaim. He finds himself arrested for a plot to overthrow the king. And he's given an ultimatum. This is the year, uh, what did I tell you, what year was it? This is the year 1666. Shabtaim is arrested. By the way, when he's in prison, Shabbat Tzvi is still receiving visitors. Visitors including the family of the authors of commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch. So those who are coming to make pilgrimage for him are those who you've heard quoted in every halakha class in which you've ever studied it in your life. They're coming to make their pilgrimage to the Mashiach who's sitting here in Turkish prison. He has the luxuries of the world in this prison, but ultimately he gets put on trial. And in this trial, he's faced with an ultimatum. The ultimatum is either convert to Islam or will kill you. That's the choice. The choice is become a Muslim or we'll kill you. Shabtai Tzvi not only decides to convert, but he converts to Islam and receives the honorary title of the gatekeeper of the Sultan, which allows for him to continue not just making money, but he now receives a government salary to live in Turkey and be a Muslim uh, there. And Shabtai Tzvi changes his name to Aziz Muhammad. There are a few different names that Shabtai Tzvi goes by. But at this point, his name is Aziz Muhammad. After he converts to Islam, there's crisis in the Jewish community. So the whole world is getting ready for Mashiach. Uh, but there's a lady, Glickel, uh, Glickel of, uh, I have her name written here. Hema, very good thing, Glickel of Hamlin. She was a famous businesswoman at that time period. And she writes about the, she talks about how it was in Germany when Chapter TV was being, every place you would go. Here I have some of her. She says, 
is it should more than the, everybody, the Sephardim would keep receiving news and they would go to the Sephardic synagogues and everybody would go to the Sephardic synagogues to hear about the news of the Mashiach that was on his way. So even in the Ashkenazi synagogues, they started uh, talking about the Mashiach that was coming. Should in the Portuguese synagogues, everybody was dressed every single day like it was a holiday because they were getting ready for the Mashiach to come. Should and then what happened, ultimately Glickel writes, that she feels like a woman who was pregnant and she was in labor and she was in labor and she was labor and then she gives birth to air, to nothing. So that was the experience of Shabbat Tzvi, that they were in pain. People sold their property because they thought they were going to Israel. People got rid of all their finances. They were, they were liquidating their assets. By the way, there were many Jews who got wealthy in this time period. The Jews who didn't believe in Shabbat Tzvi, it was a great time to invest in real estate. It's a true, that was the truth. I have some early writings from Algerian Chachamim of this time period, that they were Jews who saw hey, that these guys are getting rid of their houses, let's buy up neighborhoods, they're leaving. They never ended up going to Israel. She remembers losing all their possessions and everything else, and Mashiach never coming at the end. Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam, and now the Sabbathian camp breaks into two. Those who obviously are disappointed and they're crushed. There's a spiritual crisis facing the Jewish community all across the world. That leads to the Vad Arbaratzot, the uh, rabbis of that region, to prohibit the study of Kabbalah. You know all these things you hear under forty, this and that. that it was intended to limit the uh, the access that people had to Kabbalah, the exposure people had to Kabbalah. Essentially, they're blaming uh, Kabbalistic ideas for leading this movement. Once Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam, Natan of Azza leaves Gaza and he heads to Turkey. His whole purpose heading to Turkey is to strengthen the believers of Shabtai Tzvi to tell them, don't worry, this is normal. Mashiach is supposed to convert to Islam. This is all part of the plan. Nothing wrong here. Don't get excited. Uh, he needs to go to Islam to fix the, the klipot, the broken, you know, if you're familiar with Kabbalistic literature, you know what I'm talking about. But there's, there's a, they have to go down in order to go up again. You've heard these phrases for sure in, in other Jewish classes you've heard. And Shabtai Tzvi is only descending into the, the impurities of Islam. I'm not saying that, they're saying that. Impurities of Islam in order to purify it and also bring them salvation and redemption. And essentially, Natan of Azza is the one who's leading the Sabbathian movement until he dies in 1680. Shabbat Zvi had a son in 1667 who he named Yishmael Mordechai, which is pretty much Shabbat Zvi's life at this point in a, in a package. So it's Yishmael and Mordechai, the greatest uh, Muslim, I guess, and the greatest Jew, Mordechai HaYehudi, is the one who's known as a Jew. At this point in time, Shabbat Zvi has a whole new religion that he's marketing in the world. Shabbat Zvi doesn't stop. He's a very charismatic man. And essentially, he's half fanatic Muslim, half messianic Jew. I cannot explain to you any other way uh, that some days you find Shabtai Tzvi trying to get rabbis arrested and then Jewish communities destroyed and he's praying in mosques and showing the Muslims how they should be worshipping. Uh, and then you have exact opposite moments in history where Shabtai Tzvi is sneaking out of the mosque to go pray in synagogues and read Tehillim and lead Jewish holiday services and, and really it changes. And the, the, the Sabbathian followers, they have a word for this. Uh, I have a book here from Algeria. Uh, Rabbi Avraham Khalfon, uh, actually not from Algeria, from Tripoli. Uh, and he, he writes all kinds of things that happened in that time period. The followers of Shabtai Tzvi had different words for when Shabtai Tzvi was in light, when he was in the kingdom of Hashem, and when he was in the kingdom of darkness in which he had to deal with Islam. And they explained the way everything Shabtai Tzvi possibly did. Uh, one, of the, one of the downfalls of Shabtai Tzvi at the end of his life ultimately was that they caught him saying Tehillim in a synagogue with Jews. In which case, that was a crime. A Muslim can't be praying to healing with Jews. Shabtai Tzvi gets arrested yet again. And uh, that leads to all kinds of other things. Ultimately, his exile to a very small village in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but still, even after Shabtai Tzvi is exiled yet again, there's a little following that follows him around. Shabtai Tzvi gets engaged to a young lady. He has many young ladies throughout his life. And Shabtai Tzvi is engaged to this young lady who was engaged already to another man. And while she's married to Shabtai Tzvi, she has a child from her first husband. Don't ask, but over there, now you're dealing with issues of mamzerut, of, of illegitimate children. And the followers of Shabtai Tzvi are now forced to explain 
how their Mashiach is married, Mamzerim, and they start talking about sacred sin again, that there's a need that has to happen this way. It has to happen that these illegitimate things happen in order to make him uh, the Mashiach. This is only a test, but there's Avram Yachini is one of the followers of the Tzvi. He claims that it never happened. This is not true. This is all an illusion that God is putting in front of you to test your faith in Shabtai Tzvi or not, and the followers keep on going. Uh, when Shabtai Tzvi dies at the age of 50 in 1676, Natan of Aza says that Shabtai Tzvi never really died because he's the Mashiach. He can't really die. Shabtai Tzvi never dies. He just went to a different realm of light. Uh, he was taken away into a realm of light. Do you know the famous song that was sung for Shabtai Tzvi whenever he would come into a room? Yichi Adonenu Shabtai you ever heard that sentence before? That was the hallmark of Shabtai Tzvi. Long live our King Mashiach, Shabtai Tzvi, forever and ever. There are people who literally don't learn lessons from Jewish history. Literally, there's no other way to say it. And Shabtai Tzvi never dies. And he'll come back when the Mashiach will come. Now, ultimately, as time goes on, the Sabbathian movement dies down. The rabbis are left to fix the destruction that Shabbat Tzvi leaves in the Jewish community. There are so many sources I would have loved to read to you today that I, I just, maybe one more, but I'll, in a second. At the end of the day, these ideas of Lishma, of doing Averot intentionally for holy reasons, of uplifting sparks of darkness and, and by doing Averot, these become the hallmarks of, of Sabbathian Judaism and I don't know that they've ever really disappeared. So there's a rabbi, it's running around Jerusalem right now. They chased him around the world, Interpol, they're, they're everywhere they chased him. They finally extradited him back to Israel. He's admitted to some of the most evil sexual crimes you could ever imagine in the world. Uh, but his followers still proclaim him the leader of the generation. In fact, one of his students wrote a book about, about this thing, uh, showing you that the tzaddik of the generation is forced to, has no no choice but to sin in order to save the Jewish people. You ever heard these things before? Uh, if you're thinking that this is something that is not connected at all to any Jewish movement you're a part of, this rabbi has students and their students, and I'm certain that every one of you has either seen the books that the students of the students have written, or you own them, or your synagogue owns them. I mean, as, as ludicrous and as evil of a person as this rabbi is, it's pretty much still common accepted in many Jewish circles, the teachings that come out of that, that realm of his little dark corner of the universe. It's not so little, unfortunately. But Shabtai Tzvi's followers never really disappear. In fact, they become a group that is known as the Donme, or the Conversos. There's a fascinating book that came out quite recently. I want to recommend this because it's very well done. It's probably the only book of its kind. It's called The Donme by Mark David Baer. Jewish converts, Muslim revolutionaries, and secular Turks. And in the back of the book, it says the following. This book tells the story of the Donme, the descendants of Jews who resided in the Ottoman Empire and converted to Islam along with their Messiah, Rabbi Shabtai Tzvi, in the 17th century. For two centuries following their conversion, the Donme were accepted as Muslims. And by the end of the 19th century, they rose to the top of Salonikan society. The Donme helped transform Salonika into a cosmopolitan city, promoting the newest innovation in trade and finance, urban reform, and modern education. They eventually became the driving force behind the 1908 revolution that led to the overthrow of the Ottoman Sultan and the establishment of a secular republic. To their proponents, the Donna were enlightened secularists and Turkish nationalists who fought against the dark forces of superstition and religious obscurantism. To their opponents, they were simply crypto-Jews engaged in a plot to dissolve the Islamic empire. So you like them or you hate them, but they're still the center of life. Both points of view assume the Donna were anti-religious, whether, uh, okay. But it's time that we take these religious people seriously on their own terms. In the Ottoman Empire, the Donna promoted morality, ethics, spirituality, and a syncretistic religion that reflected of their origins at the intersection of Jewish Kabbalah and Islamic Sufism. This is the first book to tell their story from their origins to their near total dissolution as they became secular Turks in the mid 20th century in Turkey until today. There are rumors that the Prime Minister of Turkey, he's a Donme. None of these things are really true. Essentially, the anti-Semites that are in Turkey always blame certain political figures of being crypto-Jews that are there to undermine the Turkish society. This book was researched very carefully because anything that is said here could directly 
lead to the deaths of people who are still alive and well. In Turkey, there are still uh, mosques or synagogues or whatever you want to call them. Now, I cannot recommend, if not going to buy the book, then at least to research this term of Dome. The followers of Hatta Tzvi have not disappeared. They've simply faded into other uh, groups and other things. Uh, I think in the early 20s or 30s, a Donme student in the university in Istanbul gave an Ashkenazi Jewish professor a book of songs from his family. And one of them was the Tubishvat song that was sung in honor of Shabtai Tzvi, coming to reveal himself as a blossoming fruit tree because blossoms are always connected to the Mashiach. And uh, for Tubishvat on a different date. I, I, without reading it inside, I asked you a question at the beginning of this class of what else is left in the Sephardic tradition aside from Tubishvat that directly comes from Shabtai Tzvi. And nobody had an answer for me. There's a book called the Sefer HaBrit. Sefer HaBrit is written by an Ashkenazi Kabbalist by the name of Rabbi Pinchas Eliyahu Horowitz of Vilna. So don't think the Vilna Gaon, and don't think Rabbi Shaiyahu Levi Horowitz. It's a different Rabbi Horowitz from Vilna. It's a fascinating work. Harav Peretz, my rabbi's father, bought it for him as a gift when he was a young boy, and he spent much of his childhood studying this book. This book is made up of two parts. It's essentially an introduction to the book on how to receive Ruach HaKodesh, divine providence, divine connection, written by Rabbi Chaim Vital. Rabbi Chaim Vital claims that in order to receive Ruach HaKodesh, one has to become an expert not just in Torah and Kabbalah, but also become an expert in the sciences and the way nature works and mathematics and the way the world runs and geography and history. And there are many things that a person needs to know in order to be a true Kabbalist. It should shed light a lot on people that claim to be Kabbalists but don't know how to add or subtract. Just throwing it out there. Uh, Rabbi Eliyahu Horowitz of Vilna essentially wrote this book, Sefer Habrit, which is a beautiful book, whether you accept everything in there or not. First half is about science and history and mathematics, and the second half is about halakha and Kabbalah and Judaism and everything else that's in there. In there, Rabbi Pinchas Horowitz warns against all of the prayers that were that crept into the Jewish prayer book from the Sabbathian movement. So Shabtai Tzvi's followers were synagogue goers. They were rabbis. They were chazanim. Uh, in almost every Sephardic synagogue you go to, and I can't say all because I don't know how it works in the Spanish-Portuguese, I can imagine that because they suffered maybe some of the most harm, that they also were the first to remove certain things from the Sidur after this whole episode happened in the Jewish community. But at least you go to what they'll call other, regular class, I'm not classical, not the word, the, what do you guys call the other Sephardim? The Rabbi Ovadi Yosef type Sephardim, the Benish Chai type Sephardim, whatever they are. The Eastern Sephardim, you'll go to their prayer books and on every holiday before the Torah reading, there are prayers, Yihirat's on this, Yihirat's on that. Those prayers directly come from Shabtai Tzvi and his followers. Those are prayers, Chaim Ovadi Yosef claimed that he went through the prayers and that they don't have any of the, they don't have anything problematic in them. They're good prayers, they're innocent, they don't refer at all to Shabtai Tzvi. Unfortunately, I wish that were the case. I wish that were the case. Uh, just like there are some prayers that crept into the Ashkenazi prayer book that talk about Yeshu. You know what I'm talking about? Nusach Ashkenaz, Rosh Hashanah, blowing. There's famous discussion about Yeshua Sar Hapnim, the ministering angel, the inner inner angel of Yeshua. There, in Kabbalistic literature, there's no such angel, by the way. But he's the one who takes the shofar blows from our shofar to Hashem because he's the connector between the father and the children. Now, that's still in the Ashkenazi prayer book now. It's there. Uh, may, maybe some communities have taken it out, but it's there. Um, the things that creep into our Sidurim. We have to be aware of the influences that these things have in our life. But ultimately, I think that the most devastating effects the chapter Tzvi had on the Jewish people is this acceptability of messianic movements. The things that people come to proclaim, this one is the Mashiach, this thing is going to happen, it's going to bring the Mashiach. Leadership always looking in the other direction because the end justifies the means. So people becoming observant, people going to synagogue, people engaging with their Judaism, all of those things justify the evil that is happening in front of us right now. Using Kabbalistic terminology, putting your opinions on Kabbalah aside, but using Kabbalistic ideas to promote and permit all kinds of terrible, evil things. Rabbi Pilchas Eil Horowitz of Vilna talks about uh, his rape of a young boy, and that he was uh, f familiar with the story of that family. Things that Shabtai Tzvi did all across his lifetime. Things that, they're not red flags, they're, they're, it's one big red banner over the whole Jewish people's head. But everybody's looking the other way, because this man is coming to redeem us. 
And I'll tell you the truth, it's I think the Jewish community today has never really fixed in their head. So then what really is the Mashiach? What really is the redemption? Are we still waiting for some man to come in riding on a white pony who's going to take us back to Jerusalem and perform miracles and is allowed to do all kinds of terrible things? Because I'm pretty sure that history repeats itself. And as we've seen, Shabtai Tzvi, many Mashiachs have come and gone since Shabtai Tzvi. And the Jewish community doesn't seem to have got the message. And I don't think it's just those Jewish communities. I think it's all of them. And to remember that if all the rabbis of the world are lined up, and there's one or two or three, there's Rabbi Yaakov Zaspartas, Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, and a few others, that they're screaming from the hilltops, this is a false Mashiach, it's not real. In a Judaism in which, well, the G'doyalim say, the great rabbis say, the majority of the Orthodox community says, you hear these ridiculous phrases all the time. But what if I told you that the G'doyalim and the majority of the Orthodox rabbis, so I'm going to borrow terms, I'm not being uh, precise, that all of them believed in Shabtai Tzvi, except for two. So what would you tell me? Isn't there some kind of rule that you have to follow the majority over the minority? Isn't that what they tell every Jewish day school kid? That it doesn't make a difference if you think it's wrong. It doesn't make a difference if in your understanding it's wrong. It doesn't make a difference if you study from a rabbi who tells you that it's wrong. But all the rabbis that are saying something ludicrous, they're all right. Because they have a monopoly on Judaism. And they have a monopoly on Torah mitzvot. And that danger that we can thank Shabtai Tzvi for, that danger has never left the Jewish people. And it's precisely that danger which we wish to free the Jewish people from here. And I thank you for giving me the time to learn with me today. I will stick around for as long as you want to answer any questions, uh, uh, God willing. But for right now, I'm going to end the shiur. So if anyone needs to go, please have a beautiful evening.